0: Welcome to High Noon, where we talk about controversial subjects with interesting people. And my guest this week is Justin Lee, who is an associate editor at First Things Magazine, um, as well as a horror writer. Which is by far the most interesting thing anyone has ever said about themselves to me at one of those like conservative rubber chicken dinners um, <laughs> that that organizations have. Uh, but I wanted to bring him on to talk about uh, the the connections between sort of this right wing scene developing and art uh, and what what the future of that that kind of art scene might be, as well as uh, the publication of a, a uh, controversial, apparently, article um, <laughs> in First Things, uh, for which I think he was probably responsible. But um, I want to start out by asking you, you know, so for people who aren't following this particular corner of the internet, right, um, what is going on with this burgeoning sort of right-wing art scene. Um, It's a lot of Twitter anons. It's a lot of uh, folks finding each other on the internet, but also a lot of real creation of art. And it seems like a very intentional step into the breach left by this sort of dullness of, of the woke Mm -hmm. um, mainstream art scene. So, so what's the 10,000 foot view of what's going on?
1: Yeah, I think the, the 10,000 foot view is that, um, there, there are a lot of people with, uh, with real talent, uh, who have been shut out of legacy institutions in one way or another. Uh, and you know, if you're, if you're really an artist, um, you're going to make art, you know, whether you're told you can or not. And, you know, in best case scenario, that art will find its audience. And so I think we're seeing just, you know, what happens naturally when you do have talented people who uh, are put in, you know, an outsider situation. And so to, to some extent, you know, this is, you know, just a lot of outsider art finally beginning to um, coalesce and find an audience. Uh, But there, there's another element as well though, uh, where you have, um, you know, quite a few people who, you know, have had success, you know, in legacy publishing, for example, uh, who are, um, you know, just have this sense of claustrophobia right now, uh, within legacy world, uh, because of the woke stuff and, um, don't feel that they have the freedom to say what they want to say, write what they want to write. And so they're looking for other avenues. And so, so there is a, you know, there's this weird coalescence of, you know, former, former legacy people and, um, you know, newer people who don't have an existing audience um, beginning to come together and start different projects. And it's all very early. It's all very nebulous, um, but uh, I think it's exciting and hopeful.
0: So one potential sort of model for this was laid out by Michael Anton in "I am 1776, mm-hmm. right? He called it the Tom Wolfe model. And he points out that, you know, Tom Wolf, his work is now considered uh, right of center and almost certainly was when he was writing it. Um, but he really resisted that label um, and made it just about making fun of the, the avant-garde of his time for the most part, right, mm-hmm. um, on the left. And that, connected with people, because he was a brilliant writer and hilarious. Um, You know, so, so Anton proposes, basically, this is this is probably a way forward. Um, But then he points out that Tom Wolf had institutional support, right? He had somebody Mm -hmm. pay him to go around the country observing different, um, you know, subcultures and groups, and then write about them. Um, So I have two questions for you about the Tom Wolf model, I guess. One is, Um, where is this institutional support going to come from? Because it seems like it is to some extent necessary. Yes. The artists will always create art, Mm -hmm. but patronage is not a a, a new idea. Um, And then the second thing is, is satire kind of enough, right? Because it is for, it's true what Anton wrote that it's, you know, the left is sort of a a fertile ground for, for a smart and funny writer, for example, to, to make fun of. Um, but, but do you think there has to be some kind of positive component to this or, or do you think that we can just make, get away with making fun of the left because they've made themselves such easy targets?
1: I think it has to be both. Um, I don't think you can really have uh, one without the other at this point. Um, you know, if it's, if it's merely satire, um, And, you know, if it's merely parody and lampooning, then, uh, you know, I I mean, that, that gets old very quick. Um, you you can't, uh, you can't simply be against, um, you you have to be for something and, um, you know, that this has become kind of a, uh, um, mission state, a a submission statement of first things lately, uh, that, uh. You know we we generally want to avoid againstism. Um and um everything needs to be counterbalanced with a you know with a positive vision. And um so you know one of the ways that I think about this is I, I use the um cultural theorist uh, Philip Reef uh who you know the most famous book is The Triumph of the Therapeutic and you know just a, a fantastic indictment of um, you know, the therapeutic culture and how it developed and what its consequences are. And, uh, he has another book, a little bit lesser known, um, it's partially a memoir, partially a, uh, kind of aesthetic manifesto called my life among the death works. And, um, and he's, he's dissecting, you know, cultural works that, um, that serve the purpose of tearing down the normative order. Uh, so, you know, one classic example of this is, I, I forget the, you know, the so-called artist's name uh, who, who made this, but the, the work was called Piss Christ. And it was uh, a crucifix, uh, you know, turned upside down, you know, in a beaker of uh, the artist's urine. And, you know, and this was supposed to be some big profound statement, you know, because he's Shocking sensibilities, um, all that, you know, it's, it's obviously not art, um, but it's doing a kind of work, you know, that is to, um, to, um, use blasphemy to, um, murder cultural norms and, you know, <laughs> shift the Overton window in, in certain ways. And so we see the Death Works as kind of the um, those things that bring about anti culture uh, and defiance of culture. And I think Death Works used to be pretty interesting um, in, in some ways back when there was a of culture to to deconstruct. But now that the the deconstructors have succeeded, um, you know their their works are you know, they're just tepid, you know, there's no life in them uh, there's nothing interesting happening. And so the way I see, you know, a, a productive dissident, um, arts movement operating right now is, um, through de- uh, death, working, uh, the culture of death. Um, so, you know, satire and, you know, lampooning, you know, the new norms, uh, of the anti-culture, um, performs a similar death work function, um, but it actually helps pave the way for uh, work that can be life giving. And so, I, I see uh, um, you know, the, you have kind of two um, two main jobs right now. You know, if you are a dissident artist, and that's to you know destroy woke culture, uh, to destroy you know therapeutic culture and, um, you know, using your art. And so that, that means a kind of death working, uh, for that, uh, for that culture, um, and to build, uh, to do works that, uh, that, you know, are true art and clearly point people towards the true, the good, and the beautiful. Um, but uh, there does have to be a certain amount of destruction that takes place, um, to, to create room for, um, uh, the other work, if that makes sense.
0: Yeah, no, it it does, and I'm reading Triumph of the Therapeutic right now, so maybe I'll move on to to Death Works afterwards because I'm finding the the um, Triumph just uh, an incredibly prophetic uh, description mm-hmm. of where we are. Um, but and it's funny to me because actually I, I find as much as I like Christopher Lash, like I I actually find this more, uh a better description in many ways, or like, at least, and I know that they yeah. have a lot of similar themes, but this is a little older for people who haven't read it. Um, it in any case, it, it struck me when you were saying, when you're talking about Piss Christ to the, um, I think it was a photograph, right?
1: Um, yeah, you can actually out, go see it in a museum as well.
0: Yeah. It came out in the eighties, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, so it is it, interesting. At least it had that function that you, you know, sort of hinted at, right. Which is, that it did genuinely shock people's sensibilities. I think you called it using blasphemy to, um, you know, so you didn't call it art, but it, it did, you know, uh, do some kind of work. And it was legitimately in some way transgressive because in 1985 you know, or 87, right, it was still legitimately shocking to, to do what he did. Um, and it strikes me that something today, I think you're right, has very little power at all even destructive power because it's simply no, like they've reached the end of the line. and there are no more norms for them to really transgress against. Um, and, and the best example of this, I think, is, uh, not an artwork, but a building in, uh, Manhattan. There's an old church that was turned into the, I think in the eighties and nineties turned into a nightclub and then particularly a gay nightclub. Um, and that was obviously done, uh, as an act of transgression, right? We're gonna Mm -hmm. put like a gay nightclub in a church and it had that kind of transgressive, even if people were horrified by it, it like had that transgressive kind of spark where people were like, oh, wow. Um, And people who loved it, loved it. And people who hated it, hated it. And it actually did create um, sort of, uh, there is some sort of frisson there. I I can't pronounce Mm -hmm. that word, but um, whereas now it, Got changed into the nightclub clothes. It ended up being a gym for a while, and now a pizza place. And I think that's just a perfect trajectory of of how basically um, it's become. It's lost even the edge because there's nothing no, nothing transgressive about it anymore. Mm-hmm. Now it's just a place to grab a slice of pizza. Um,
1: yeah, no. I mean, if you want, uh, you know, gay dancing, you can go to any progressive church, you know, in in the city, and you're you know, liable to find drag Queens performing on Sundays, you know, it's uh, yeah. Um, it's really hard to be transgressive um, in that direction. Um,
0: They're easy to be transgressive in the opposite direction. Yeah.
1: In a certain
0: sense.
1: Yeah. Yeah. You just, yeah. Just by being normal and trying to be healthy um is becoming an act of transgression um
0: i wonder how it would be received uh if somebody suspended the gay pride flag in a canister of urine and took a picture of it
1: uh we could find out um, <laughs> uh, you know I, I we know we know exactly how it would be perceived um you know it would be um you know, it would be treated incredibly harshly. Um, The person who did it would be unpersoned, um, you know, rapidly and with um, as much vehemence as could be mustered. Um, And it would be a significantly, um, it would be a significantly stronger response than what happened to Piss Christ. Because even in the 80s, you know, it's, yeah, it had some frisson to it, but it was, um, but it was largely something you could yawn about. Uh, it was like, yeah, these people are going to do their thing. And, um, you know, the the church certainly didn't have the kind of cultural power in the eighties to really punish anyone for doing that kind of a performance. Whereas, you know, the regime now absolutely has the power to, um, you know unperson someone who you know urinates on a pride flag
0: yeah i'm pretty and... sure that's a hate crime oh yeah like actually now that i'm thinking about it i'm pretty sure that would be considered like like you might actually get prosecuted in depending on the context cuz there was somebody who dragged down a pride flag on front of some restaurant in the middle of the night and i'm pretty sure she she is now being prosecuted
1: hmm. and it as a hate crime not just as vandalism yeah. Wow. Yeah.
0: Um, I'd have yeah, to look that's... into the details of that case and I don't know, but just from headlines. Um, mm-hmm. Let's return for a moment to the the more, um, perhaps not as interesting, but, but at least equally important question of patronage. Um, mm-hmm. How do we build new institutions that will provide the kind of paycheck that Tom Wolfe was able to enjoy um, or at least the kind of, um, legitimacy within, I guess you could call it dissident circles, right? Um, especially if you're showcasing people who haven't, um, haven't put their art into the public before, they don't have a natural audience, um, until an institution sort of grants them one. I mean, are those kinds of institutions being built? I mean, how far are we from somebody, uh, who wants to do art that, transgresses against the norms of our culture, being able to find the kind of patronage that left wing artists do.
1: Yeah, we, we, we have quite a ways to go. Uh, it's still very early. Um, some institutions are emerging. You mentioned I am 1776 earlier, and you know, they've, they've just shifted their their focus to doing this very thing. To providing patronage um, and platforming, um, you know, dissident writers, and I, they, I know they've just received a, a big chunk of funding uh, to to help do that. You know, so there is some donor interest in making this happen. And um, I, I know uh, we're going to get to the Longhouse article shortly, but uh, the author of that article, Lomez. Um, is launching a publishing company um, that you know on off of the success of uh, the passage prize which was uh, an anthology uh, competition um, that uh, that he um, set up on Twitter and got a lot of participation and a lot of interest in and um, and he it, you know his uh, publishing project is um, very close to um, getting the funding that it needs to, to have a really big first year. And, um, and this is actually, I, I believe, unlike 1776, it's a, uh, a for-profit venture. And uh, so these are, these aren't just uh, donors. It's uh, investors, you know, who see um, real opportunity in, in this uh, nascent movement. And, um, So, you know, what what it's going to take is, um, I guess, individual patronage um, and institutional patronage um, to support writers uh, and creators, you know, in the creation of the work. Um, But then the the even bigger thing is, um, you know, we need our own publishing houses. uh, We need our own art galleries. We need our own theaters. uh, We need our own production companies. Um, and we need our own distribution platforms uh, because the uh, you know the the big problem that uh, a lot of the stuff will run into is distribution because there's absolutely an audience for it you know if, if any big five publisher um, found you know the uh, the new Tom Wolf um, you know he or she would sell like crazy um, and. But it's just the question of, you know, do they have the willingness to take that risk, that reputational risk, to tap a, an, you know, an obviously existing audience? And, and right now, you know, they're largely cowards. Um, and especially if it's a new writer with no platform at all, it's just not going to happen. And especially if that writer's male, <laughs> which is just how the industry's working right now. Um, but, uh, so, um, if we can solve that distribution problem, um, then, you know, I think the whole thing is viable, uh, but we have to keep in mind that it's, uh, not an easy problem to solve because this stuff can't just happen digitally. The, these can't just be really good eBooks. Um, it has to, they have to, you know, has to be physical objects, that are beautiful, uh, that, uh, that you want to have, uh, that you want to hold and, you know, and give to people, show to people. Um, this is something that Lomaz understands pretty well. And, uh, you see this with, a, uh, you know, this first passage prize, passage prize anthology, um, you know, the, the hardback, you know, sold for $400 a piece. It's very lavishly produced. Um, He only printed 250 copies. So it's scarce. Um, And they all sold out um, almost immediately. And so this shows that there, you know, there is a viability, Um, you know, that there are people who are actually very invested in, in the idea of this kind of work being, being made and are ready to support it. Um, But uh, distribution is going to be, I think, maybe one of the biggest problems that we have to overcome.
0: So another problem that I can see needing to be overcome is, is how to sort of orient these institutions. So as to avoid, because there have been attempts like this, but not, I think this one has a lot more, um, a lot more chance, a lot more hope than some of those others, Mm. but you know, there have been attempts to fund, you know, conservative art, but they Mm. have always come at it basically with a very heavy handed political messaging Yeah, Um, Yeah. that has made it boring and usually it's not very good art. Mm. Um, How do you avoid like how do you, you uh, for example, if you're an institution, if you're Lomez picking from entries for the passage prize, or um if you're in a uh, foundation and you're choosing artists to support, to patronize, to give the platform to, you know, how do you evaluate basically how do you how do you fit politics into the way that you evaluate it, right? Because obviously you don't wanna publish like Lomez would never publish Mm -hmm. some you know woke piece of art with like the the new york times stretchy heads and blank faces you know like he would immediately see that but some things are are more subtle i mean how do you keep sort of the it among quote unquote our guys um and and make sure that you're actually supporting that side of um, the artistic community that isn't getting the support from the mainstream Mm -hmm. institutions Um, But at the same time, not actually just directly injecting politics and saying, "Okay, here's a list of things you must believe if you want to submit art to the Passage Project." You you understand Mm -hmm. what I'm saying?
1: Yeah. um, I mean, it's this this early on, it's very easy to tell who's who, and and who is you know who's potentially worthy of investment, and um, because. At this point, it's just easy to spot who's not playing the game, uh, who's not playing the, you know, by progressive rules. And they're they're often already canceled or they're pre-canceled. And, you know, they've already, um, they're very typically already out. And, you know, behind closed doors, um, people who are, um, you know, still, uh, still in the closet, so to speak, um, are very often reaching out to the people who are much more publicly, um, you know, present with their beliefs and still trying to make art. And so, and so there are the, there are already networks that exist, uh, informally for identifying people. And, you know, so, so if you talk to Lomez, um, or if you talk to Alex Perez or, Mark Granza, you know, like they just have a whole network of people that they know uh, who are trying to make art and, and those people know people. Um, so what this tells me is that, you know, if you're a donor uh, looking to uh, be involved in patronage, um, you know, you very well may not be um, in a position to make good judgments about what is a significant art. Or what is good writing, etc. You might be able to recognize things that you like, or things that um, seem to connect with your politics, um, but uh, you just might not have the training or the cultivation um, quite yet to, you know, t- to have a uh, that kind of discernment. But uh, there are a lot of people who do, and identifying people who do have discernment and empowering them to make decisions. Um, on your behalf uh, in order to extend patronage. Um, I think that would be the wise way to go forward.
0: Yeah, that brings me to another question I had, which is about the the apparent cultural gap between what is being produced as dissident or right-wing art and let's say the average Trump voter in America um, mm-hmm. and whether this movement would be I guess I'm asking really a question about the relationship between sort of being avant-garde newness um, mm. and and art generally, because it seems like I, I'm not of the opinion that like uh, I'm I'm not an elitist in this sense. I mm-hmm. There was a time in this country where art was aimed at a much more general audience. And I don't think that that made it worse art. In fact, the the modern uh, sort of left-wing avant-garde scene shows how esoteric you can become Mm -hmm. when you're dependent only on grants and you're only trying to impress, you know, two critics in two magazines. Mm -hmm. Um, Or just other artists. Yeah, and, like, not connecting, not creating art that connects with Mm -hmm. the average person. But on the other hand, there seems like a pretty big gap between some of this art and what, like, I don't know, your average trump voter uh is probably like looking for or wants to see or read
1: um yeah i i think i think that there's there's some truth to that but i also think that your um you know your average trump voter probably isn't reading a whole lot um and you know for a myriad of reasons but one of the biggest one of the biggest ones is that you know fiction is very rarely written for them. Um, you know, you're, you're right about that, that this, you know, has been kind of a, an epical change um, in, you know, in, in who are writers are writing for. Um, but, but this has been, you know, but this has been true for decades at this point. And, um, you know, there is this um, radical disconnect um, between, you know, um, literary literature and, and genre literature. Um, and, you know, the former tends to be very navel gazing, um, and, and self-satisfied and, and the latter, um, you know, even, even when it is infiltrated by woke nonsense, um, simply by virtue of being genre, you know, it's committed to plot, it's committed to um, compelling narrative, compelling characters, um, and it's committed to having stakes, you know, that are um, clear. Um, which means that it's it's much more likely to resonate with um, normal people, um, because you know that is it's actually getting at things that are much more eternal and that aren't simply of the moment. Um, you know, the, the traditional, you know, narrative arc is what it is for a reason because it speaks to something very deep in the human soul. And, you know, when fiction, um, tries to eschew that, um, it's, uh, you know, there, there's always a cost. And, but, uh, you know, the, the other element of this though, is, um, and this, uh, you know, will start to get us into the longhouse thing <laughs> that, uh, you know, the publishing industry is, um, has been run by women for decades. And, and even when there's been nominal male leadership, um, you know, it's, uh, it's been governed by the demands of a, of a very feminine market. Um, so, you know, between 70 to 80% of readers of literary fiction are women and about 80% of all the, uh, the editors and agents in New York are women. And, and, so this has an impact on the sensibilities of the work that gets published and the kinds of writers that get chosen. And, and this has been true. You know, it's not, this didn't just now happen. This has been true for decades and it's just uh, become much more extreme over time. Um, but, uh, but for decades, you know, the message to the av- you know, the the normal reader in America um, is that books are for women, and in particular, fiction is for women. Uh, so you see this huge gender divide um, between readers of fiction and nonfiction, and and the divide breaks down by genre as well. You know, you have very few men reading literary fiction, even old literary fiction. Uh, They gravitate towards um, science fiction, uh, towards fantasy, uh, towards horror. Um, And and I think that this is, you know, I think that this is a very unhealthy situation that we've uh, found ourselves in. Uh, I don't think that the gender divide should be what it is.
0: Um, that's, that's definitely true, even with regard to sort of childhood books, there's almost nothing being written in a modern sense that would attract boys to reading, it Mm -hmm. seems like there's very, and especially there's very little assigned, right? You don't, you don't have Ivanhoe assigned in, Mm -hmm. in class anymore, right? You have like House on Mango Street, or what was the one by Amy Tan, about the four, four generations of women, I can't remember already, um, Mm -hmm it wasn't good.
1: Joy Joy Luck Club. Joy
0: Luck Club. Um like you don't have these these sort of adventurous themes um in in books that would attract boys to reading at all. Um Mm -hmm. so that the content seems to be very feminine skewed, even what's assigned at school and so on. Um so let's let's talk about the Longhouse article, right? Because so First Things published a few weeks ago, um, we've mentioned Lomez a few times already, but he is an anonymous Twitter account um, that goes under the name Lomez. That's not his real name. Um, and people seemed very upset that First Things, a Christian magazine had published someone of this sphere. And that's that's really what it seemed to be, because the article itself, even though it uses that sort of very online buzzword longhouse i mean the article itself i mean heather mcdonald wrote something quite similar about universities being Mm -hmm. dominated and being uh, by women and becoming feminized in their responses um for example to student hysterics right uh Mm -hmm. when a student says that they're offended there's a sort of feminized bureaucracy that responds not by just telling them to get over it but by by trying to respond to those concerns and bend over backwards so and that's city journal right that's a very Mm -hmm. Mainstream Manhattan Institute publication. So mm-hmm. I, I find it hard to believe that it was the content of what was published so much as the the gall you had to publish one of these sort of anonymous art scene mm-hmm. Twitter anons. So what do you think, of, first of all, what what was the reaction? I mean, how did you experience the reaction from Patrick Deneen and others? So there was a lot of mm-hmm. uh, pushback against it. Why did you publish this article in First Things? Um, and then what do you think, why do you think it was important, I guess, to, to publish something like this, um, in, in a established Christian magazine?
1: Yeah. Um, so for a number of reasons, um, the, the biggest is I think that it, uh, taps into something that is very true and that needs to be discussed and, um, and that uh, we need to have debate about and, I think that it's, you know, something that is, you know, very clearly worth our readers time. Um, and you know, they, I, a lot of people have come to similar ideas in different, uh, forms, you know, like, uh, you know, this, this recent McDonald piece. Um, but, uh, but even in the New York times, um, you know, Thomas Edsel, you know, who, Lomez uh, Lomez quotes in the article, you know, wrote an enormous piece on this a few years ago, you know, that's, you know, very, very well researched, um, and showing the extent of this phenomenon, uh, but of course, offering no judgment. Um, you know, just, just purely descriptive. And and of course, first things has written on this. You know, we've published on this in the past. Uh, we just didn't call it the Longhouse. <laughs> um, and but. But for but for younger audiences, especially people who are really online, they're going to be familiar with this term, or they will have come across it, and um, and it has a you know it has a lot of resonance. Um, it's uh, it people people really connect with it, and so it's something that our readers need to be aware of. You know that here's this potent metaphor uh, for this thing that you know, we, you know, in a presented differently, we would all acknowledge, yeah, this is a real thing. Um, But uh, here's, here's the metaphor that has gained the most traction, you know, in relation to this problem. Uh, So it's something our readers should know about, but publishing, it also sends a message to, you know, anonymous land that, um, you know, that an establishment institution like first things recognizes their validity um, that, uh, that there are real ideas, uh, that are meaningful, that are potent and worth engaging, um, coming from, you know, outside of, uh, the conservative mainstream and, um, that's a, you know, so yeah, some people pushed back, but, um, the, the reception in that world, um, was overwhelmingly positive. Um, and you just had this sense of gratefulness that, oh, they're taking us seriously. Um, and, and that's a good thing. Um, doesn't mean we need to take everything that comes from, you know, that corner of discourse, um, with the same level of seriousness, but, you know, we need to recognize what's well thought, you know, what's well thought out, what's, uh, deeply considered, uh, and particularly, you know, what is, what is resonant, uh, and engage it intelligently, how
0: do you think
1: this is? Oh, go ahead. Um, oh yeah. I was just going to say, uh, regarding the pushback, you know, there was you know, there was pushback from people like Danine, who didn't read the piece when he had, uh, commented on it, uh, which I know with certainty. And, and that was, that was the case for most people. So it was almost purely about uh, the fact that we use a term, you know, that was popularized by bronze age pervert. Uh, and because we published uh, an, an anonymous guy, you know, there's an internet flamethrower. Um, but, uh, you know, if you, if you look at the response to Denine on Twitter, um, not just coming from, um, you know, the anonymous quarters, but coming from, you know, a lot of mainstream voices, he got absolutely thrashed. Um, for that, for that tweet, um, you know, the, the reaction was resoundingly, this is, this is an idiotic position. It's mere gatekeeping for the sake of gatekeeping. Um, and, um, and it's beneath someone of his intellectual caliber and behind the scenes, you know, the magazine has gotten this outpouring of support, um, and and gratitude uh from people, especially men, who who've said something to the effect in their emails of um, this is what I've been experiencing, but haven't had the words to articulate. Thank you for publishing this.
0: So I feel like we've been dancing around what the longhouse actually is. And this is an article called What is the Longhouse, I believe, right? Yeah. Um yeah. so so what what is the Longhouse? Because I, I sort of blew past that uh just because probably from being very online, I just <laughs> used mm-hmm. to,
1: yeah, yeah used to
0: the terminology. But um, so so, what is the Longhouse? How does it relate to this sort of increasing proportion of um, various industries being female dominated? Because um, Lomas, for example, has a, a great line in there where he wrote in the article where he says, you know, this is not only enforced by women. So it's not mm-hmm. a mere... The Longhouse is not a mere, like, sort of numerical accounting of of who's in what job,
1: right? Yeah, although that can help us understand it a bit, um, but yeah, but it's it's basically, um, you know, the the general trend uh, over the past several decades of of making, a, you know, a kind of feminine or I guess feminized phenomenology um, the cultural norm in, in many significant spheres. And, um, a, and this is, I, I think, most consequential in, um, in domains that uh, used to be characterized by um, more masculine values related to competition. And so, so the way that, that men and women compete and, handle conflict, you know, is is different. You know, men and women are not the same. Um, you know, we are um different in important and typically complementary ways. And I think certain certain domains of public life um you know are better served by, by certain masculine predispositions. Um so you know in the business world uh, hierarchy and conflict um, you know, that, uh, you know, proceeds from competition is very valuable, uh, drives innovation. And, um, and if you have a more feminized sensibility that, um, is opposed to overt hierarchies and overt competition, um, and prefers things to be done, um, you know, subtly, um, and with a, a more surface level egalitarianism um, you know, that doesn't necessarily serve innovation in certain contexts. And, and so we're kind of downstream of a lot of those effects. So one, one way to think about the longhouse is, um, you know, the, the, the normalization of a, or, or I'd say the supremacy of a, of a feminized sensibility, um, within domains that, Um, Are better served by, you know, pure gender neutrality or even um, a masculine sensibility. And, um, you know, Lomaz talks about uh, the way this contributes to um, safetyism and cancel culture, you know, and just the entire complex of of woke pathologies uh, that afflict our culture. And, and I think that's right. Um, you know, and to draw things back to Reef or Reef, um, you know, we can just refer to the longhouse as um you know the therapeutic culture uh writ large. Um it's just another term for you know what what reef is getting at. And um Having said that, that means it's important to know that it's not just this, it's not about blaming women. It's not about um, this being the fault of women. Um, Because men, uh, by and large, pioneered therapeutic culture. Uh, I mean, so much of this stuff stems from Freud. And... You know, so it's a, so it's not simply, you know, a matter of, you know, women in the workplace causing issues, you know, or women in, you know, running HR departments or compliance offices are, you know, causing a certain set of problems. Uh, It's about a certain way of seeing the world um, that is more traditionally feminine than masculine. Um, Having supremacy in domains um, where it shouldn't.
0: Which, which came first, then, in your estimation, the female dominance of um, important industries or this feminized culture, right? Because I could see it going mm-hmm. either way. I could see, uh, you know, sort of a post-Freud world and particularly a, an economy moving into a managerial phase of capitalism, mm-hmm. Um really favoring the risk averse, favoring the managerial, favoring, um, and having certain sort of conditions that then make it, I don't know, I'm thinking here about like, about an industry mm-hmm. like HR or, um, a good one that's, mm-hmm. I think totally female dominated largely is um, hospital administration, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, those jobs require or favor a set of skills um that tend to be more feminine and and so I, I guess i'm asking you which which way did this go in other words did we have this kind of therapeutic cultural revolution in the 70s that consequently combined with a longer term sh- economic shifts just make essentially female culture more competitive in a certain sense and and more valued mm-hmm. and now do we therefore have you know the 58% of degrees and so on going to women or is it the reverse that um, having a certain number of women in these industries then feminized the culture to such an extent that men simply started kind of bowing out?
1: Yeah, I think it's the, I think it's the former. Um, and I, I think that uh, certain deep structural changes, you know, probably beginning in the Wilson era, um, you know, in the emergence of, you know, the, you know, the managerial phenomenon, um, probably the, the deeper culprit. Um, and of course this, um, you know, made it, made it possible for women to be in the workplace in a new way. Um, and this is in some ways good. Um, and in another ways, uh, negative. Um, you know, one of my, one of my favorite uh, ways of thinking about this comes from Wendell Berry, um and um in his essay A feminism the body and the machine and he says something to the effect that um you know this this whole system has been you know pretty awful for men um why why would we expect it to um you know get any better just because you know we let women experience these awful things as well you know in this context um, you know, so if it's abusive of, abusive of men, um, you know, we're not going to make it better by letting it abuse women as well. Uh, if that makes sense, you know, just regarding to the whole capitalist system. Um, but, uh, I, I think that, you know, you know, it's, it's not, I mean, th- there might be a clear, you know, kind of a clearer origin you know of guilt um you know in in the, the managerial system but uh but all these problems which maybe you can think of them as latent problems uh, really get actualized you know when the gender balance is in practice um lopsided um and, and a certain character of the system becomes um you know, more deeply ingrained, more deeply constitutive, you know, it's like, you know, I mean, bureaucracy has been around for a long time. Um, you know, we don't think of Prussian bureaucracy as being especially feminine. So, so it's not like bureaucracy itself is necessarily uh, mm-hmm. profoundly gendered. Um, but I think in our case, um, it combined, uh, maybe just serendipitously, uh, with the emergence of the therapeutic and um and the therapeutic served the interests of, the interests of uh the managerial class to such an extent that it just got in you know very much enshrined um because you know when you think about it if you're if you're trying to minimize risk in an organization uh and you're also trying to protect your own position, you know, as a higher administrator, uh, if you want to safeguard your own power, um, then de-emphasizing hierarchy, hiding the extent to which you do control things, um, and, uh, minimizing overt competition, um, can protect your own ass. Um, and so there's, you know, there's this element of self-interest too, that has driven it and historically this has been the self-interest of men um, anyway so another way to think about this you know if you want to uh make it even less about blaming women is that uh you know this is this is the beta male hierarchy or patriarchy um you know we have uh beta males you know using Uh, feminine values in order to, to preserve their own standing.
0: Um, The, the counterpoint uh, to the example you gave, Oh, nobody thinks of the Prussians as a feminized state. Uh, We do kind of think of the Byzantines that way though, in juxtaposition to the Western empire. Uh, We think Mm -hmm. of perhaps unfairly as sort of a, the softer, more decadent, less martial half of Um, so that, and, famously, they gave us the word Byzantine yeah. <laughs> as, as uh, descriptive of, of bureaucracy. Um, but it, it's true that, so I, I do think there's some kind of inherent link here, because a, a managerial system is necessary at a certain level of size, I think. So I'm not, I'm, I'm not like a absolutist. I think there has to be, I mean, there, there has always been, quote, unquote, an administrative state. I mean, Jefferson, complained about Hamilton's Treasury Department being bloated. It was 23 people. Um, (laughs) So uh, there is a certain amount of administrative uh, organization that is necessary. And in fact, one of the geniuses uh, of America has been the ability to organize logistics in war, for example. Um, Hmm. But it is also true that this kind of managerial or bureaucratic form distributes and makes like by its nature does distribute and make unclear lines of accountability and responsibility right and we that's, we always talk about the system now or constantly talking about um, things in terms of the system rather than personal responsibility and it strikes me that that is very much part of the uh feminized i mean it, it is a feminine mode of of being in the in the way that is described in this Longhouse article, right. Which is that Mm -hmm. um, the lines of accountability and responsibility are, are of necessity sort of unclear in a bureaucracy because the whole Mm -hmm. thing is so unwieldy. I mean, everybody has had that response like frustrating experience of going to the DMV and then, you know, one, one uh, worker, usually a woman, right. Tells you, Oh, um, you don't have the right form. And then you say, well, this other woman told me that this was the form that Mm -hmm. I needed. Right. Everybody's had that kind of, um, the left hand doesn't know what the right hand is doing, or at least claims not to. Uh, sort of experience with bureaucracy, so maybe there is something inherent about it. Um, to circle back to to the questions at the, at the top of the hour here, um, I guess what what uh, what drew you to writing in the first place as one of these artists, as a, a man who's trying to escape the longhouse, whatever we want to, <laughs> however we want to define this, um, what drew you to writing and and to horror in particular as a way of uh, making art?
1: Yeah. So um, it, something I keep discovering with other writers is, is that, you know, you, you don't choose writing. You know, it, it chooses you. It becomes this kind of demonic compulsion. And you know, which, you know some, some writing mentors will go so far as to discourage people from becoming writers, um, because they know if you're supposed to be a writer, you're going to write. Um, and, and it doesn't matter what the world says to you, you know, you, you have to do it. Um, one of my uh, college professors put it really well. Um, he said that, uh, the, you know, the only thing worse than writing is not writing. And, um, you know, so there's this kind of compulsion to it and, um, I, I can't, I can't really account. I mean, I try, sometimes I try to moralize or intellectualize my interest in horror, but, um, at the end of the day, you know, I watched alien when I was too young to watch alien and it scared the hell out of me. And I fell in love with the alien, with the monster, And the kind of, the kind of powerful emotion that could be produced by this. I would, I would draw, you know, the xenomorph in the margins of my homework in elementary school and freak out my teachers. Um, and, and I got a lot of delight out of that. You know, it's the, it's just this perennial boyish impulse of, you know, you, you find a toad. And, and you come and you set it on someone's shoulder and they freak out and that just feels wonderful, <laughs> um, to be the person that brings that about. And, and so if I can do that to someone at an existential level, um, you know, then the, uh, you know, the, the perverse delight is even deeper. Um, but, uh, um, Stephen King answered this question really well. He he might've been stealing this answer from another writer. Um, But uh, he used to say, when people say, so why horror? Um, He would say, well, you know, I I have the heart of a young boy. Um, I keep it in a jar on my desk. And, you know, so it's like, you know, it's true without the second half of of the sentence and it's even truer with it um but uh but i do think that uh, moral you know that uh, that horror is a powerfully moral genre um you know i mean you know postmodern horror tends to revel in ambiguity but i think the most effective horror um you know has has a very clear demarcation of good and evil and it might have, you know, characters that are, that are very gray. Um, But, uh, but to have the kind of shadow to that makes horror effective, you have to have a black and white world. And, and so, you know, when you watch a well done horror movie, um, you know, it's very likely to throw in relief. um, Moral absolutes um, in the way that, uh, Greek tragedy used to. Um, and I, I sometimes think of horror as, um, you know, a purified modern version of tragedy. Um, even though it doesn't always have the tragic arc. Um, so, so one example is, uh, my favorite recent horror movie is hereditary. Um, uh, uh, by Ari Aster. Um and it was just just a phenomenal movie um about uh you know the the disintegration of a family. And the the whole movie is very very intentionally structured like uh, a Greek tragedy. Um and instead of, you know, the gods or the fates Um, creating the impossible situation, Um, it's demons. Uh, But the sense at the end, you know, is the same, that, um, you know, that we're we're trapped uh, in a particular way. Um, And, you know, as a Christian, I don't ultimately believe that, um, you know, as being true of ultimate reality. Uh, But I do believe that experientially, that's often very much the case that uh, that we seem to be trapped um, and it seems that we're being compelled uh, by forces outside of our control and and witnessing that you know in a fictional contest does bring about catharsis in meaningful ways um
0: Well, uh, where, where can people go to find your work other than first things or you're an associate editor, um, can you give us your Twitter handle and then where people can read your short stories?
1: Yeah. So my short stories are kind of all over the place right now, but, uh, you know, you can find them on my personal website, um, uh, which needs to be updated badly. Um, but Twitter handle is at Justin Dean Lee, uh, Dean, like James Dean, and, and that's my website as well, justindeanlee.com. And there's a fiction section that'll have uh, links to all my published stories. And yeah, most uh, most recent one is at the magazine Return. Uh, it's a return.life and it's called Killshare. Uh, it's about an app that allows you to participate in political assassinations. Um. <laughs>
0: That that, uh, seems just realistic to be horrifying, just like close enough to us to be horrifying. Um, Justin Lee, thank you so much for joining High Noon. Uh, It's been a pleasure.
1: Thank you for having me. Likewise.
0: And thank you to our listeners. High Noon with Inez Stepman is a production of the Independent Women's Forum. Uh, as always, you can send comments and questions to inez.stepman at iwf.org. Please help us out by hitting the subscribe button and leaving us a comment on, or review on Apple Podcasts, Acast, Google Play, YouTube, or iwf.org. That really helps with those algorithms. Um, be brave, and we'll see you next time on High Noon.